The following is audio from The Refuge Church. Every sermon is an invitation to understand, obey, and enjoy God. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.us. Father, you know it's inside and out. You know all that we have done, all that's sitting in our hearts right now, acted upon and not acted upon. And you know us completely. And we bring to you our whole selves, heart, soul, mind, strength. We do ask you to create in us pure hearts, steadfast spirits. You'll restore joy to us. I think many of us have come to terms with the joyless existence not knowing that we can be restored completely, restored to your presence, to a purity that can look with unblinking eye at another person and enjoy their presence because we've been forgiven, we've been freed. I pray that you open up your word to us that we'll understand how this is possible. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. When I was a senior in high school, my family did a two-week trip throughout uh, England, Scotland, Wales, and uh, one of the sights along the way, it was all these very beautiful old church buildings, large Anglican church buildings that we would go to Evensong in, and, and you'd have each night this singing of praises to God. And after going to a couple of these, I started no, noticing that, that on the altar or on the front where you'd have this large wooden altar of sorts, it's probably not the right word for it, I don't think they were sacrificing anything there, but uh, it would say, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, And I realized that is why the church, these buildings, these places, historically have been places to go to confess. Because the church, which really is the people of God, but we have made these places that are special to us, places where we congregate to sing praises and to pray and to hear the word of God. We go to these places because these should be Mercy places, places where we aren't outsiders or different when we know our need for mercy. That should be the church. Um, and yet uh, buildings, church buildings at least, don't have that um, appeal. They don't have that draw anymore. If someone were to at midnight think, where should I go to pray? You know, maybe even 50 years ago, they would think, I'm going to go to a church, the door's probably open, I can walk in and I can pray. That's not, not what happens. And it can be challenging coming into a, a congregation of people, a group of people, and, and being so in need of mercy. Because oftentimes, at least we think, even if that's not the heart of anyone in the room, at least we think we need to hide the part of ourselves that need mercy, right? We need to hide those parts. But here in this 
prayer, this essential prayer, this prayer that is probably the most common of all prayers a a person will pray who knows they are a sinner in need of a Savior, is this, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. It's the foundational prayer for all other prayers that come after. The prayer that allows us to know that we are accepted, loved, forgiven by God, and that we can just be with him without shame anymore. Lord, have mercy, and that God is ready to have mercy on us. Now, mercy in itself is intimidating. It's intimidating because we don't deserve mercy. So when we ask those words with a genuine humility, a genuine brokenness, a place that we know really who we are, when we finally come to a a confrontation with our essential selves and we know our need for mercy, we know just how far we are from deserving mercy and we know we can't require it, right? It's based upon the character of the giver, not the receiver. Based upon who God is, not who we are. I'm the needy one. God is the one with the ability to actually heal and forgive me. And so mercy is a scary thing to ask for. I don't know all cultures, but I I can say to ours, this is especially difficult. For this reason... I'm just going to read this because I think it's true what I wrote. The gracious acceptance of our confession does not begin with being accepted for who I am, but by accepting God as he has revealed himself to be. So oftentimes what I'm saying is in our culture we go, accept me for who I am. Mercy is accepting who God is, how holy he is, how good, righteous Just he is, and not saying, accept me for who I am, but make me who you've made me to be. And that's a very scary, scary, scary place to be. What will happen to us in that process of becoming? How long will that process of becoming, how long will that mercy take, and what will that work of mercy look on our lives? This is the lesson that we get in Psalm 51. Seeing who God is, being terrified by it, and yet coming closer. This is the confession of the murderer, David. Now, as we pick up in Psalm 51, answering this big question, when I have sinned so big, how is it possible to be forgiven? Um, We are definitely helped by the story of David. Now, I'm just going to tell you the story of David. It can be found in 2 Samuel 11 to 12. Um, but I will, I will just kind of tell it as a story, and, um, and hopefully you enjoy stories. I wouldn't actually say this is an enjoyable story. It is somewhat of a thriller, though. So we are introduced to David in 2 Samuel 11, where it says, it is springtime and all the kings go off to war. Yet David hasn't gone off to war. David has decided to stay at home. Now, given the way leaders lead today, we might not understand that back then leaders went to war. Leaders wouldn't stay at home. The expectation of a king is that in springtime, they would 
establish their power and they would extend their power by, by going and fighting. A brutal hand-to-hand combat where you look the other person in the eye and you attack them. Now, you can probably imagine why David didn't want to go off to war. But it was an abdication of his responsibility as a king to do that. So he decides to stay at home. And one night at home, while he's lounging on the top of his castle, he looks over and he sees a woman bathing on the large home next to theirs. Now, he probably wasn't intentionally looking that way or intentionally looking for anyone, but he did see somebody and in that moment had a decision. Would he keep looking or stop looking? And he kept looking. He entertained the thought. And that thought led to an action of inviting her, the king, the one in power, inviting her into his bedroom. And they slept together. Now, he probably thought at that point he could have just ignored the fact of what happened, keep going on, nobody really knew, maybe a couple servants knew, but he probably could just keep walking forward. But this woman Bathsheba sent word that she was pregnant. He would be found out. What would happen to King David if everyone found out that he had got a woman pregnant? Well, he made a plot to again avoid being found out. And so he invited Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, as we know him, who was one of David's elite bodyguard, one of the mighty men of David. This is a close friend. This isn't someone who is distant. This is someone who he knows, who he's barbecued with, spent time with, laughed together, known each other deeply. He invites Uriah, Uriah the Hittite, back to his castle. And so Uriah comes from the front lines because he's where he should be. That's where his responsibility is and he is there. He is a faithful servant of the king. And so he comes back. David gets him drunk, tries to get him to go home and sleep with his wife. But he won't do that because he says, my responsibility is at the front lines. And probably there's a little jab there. And David, you should be there too. That's where you should be also. But I'm there. And so he goes back to his house, but he sleeps on the threshold. He doesn't even go in his home. He just sleeps outside because all the other men are out doing battle. They're, they're sleeping on the battlefield. I'm not going to go and sleep in my bed. I should be out there with him. And so he goes, never having slept with his wife, and he goes back, and David knows that his plan didn't work. And so, so David goes deeper and deeper into his sin. He writes a letter to Joab, the general of the army, and he says, Put Uriah the Hittite up front where the arrows fly. Put him so close to the fighting that he could, something could happen to him. Job's puzzled. Uriah the Hittite's a friend of the king. How could this happen? What, what could have caused this? But Joab, the general, not asking questions, just does as he's told, and Uriah the Hittite dies. Now, what happens next is that the baby is born, and then in chapter 12... Nathan, the prophet, comes. Now, because we have just been told at the end of 11 that the baby's bored, there's some time now between him seeing Bathsheba on the rooftop and Nathan, the prophet, coming. That means we have at least nine months, and then the baby's born, so maybe we're at a year. We're at a year after all that happened. David probably has really put some distance between himself and his sin. He's probably feeling like, you know, no one's really going to figure me out. He, he had, uh, you know, after Bathsheba was done grieving, he married her. 
And so he's like, maybe people just think premature birth, you know. He's probably just made himself feel like that horrific scandals behind him. Well, now, Nathan the prophet comes in chapter 12. The first time, and I think there is something we can draw from this. The first time Nathan, the name, is ever mentioned in Scripture, it's in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And this is what it says. There were, the, these were the sons born to David in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shabab, those literally were the two first names he chose, Shemu and Shabab, Nathan, and then Solomon. So the third son born to him, this is chapter 5, 2 Samuel, is named Nathan. Now the next time we ever hear, that's the first time we ever get the name Nathan, the second time we ever get the name Nathan is when uh, Nathan comes to speak with David. And David says, you know, I have all this wealth, all this power. I want to do something for God. Right? That's the second time we ever hear the word Nathan. So what this probably means, I think we can infer that they they were probably pretty good friends, Nathan and David. David likely, if we're just taking what's here, likely named his third son after Nathan the prophet. So Nathan the prophet shows up in chapter 12, a year after. The scandal has happened. And he probably shows up. David probably wasn't expecting him. David said, you know, go freshen up. I'll meet you in the veranda. Come out to the veranda. They're probably eating a charcuterie board together. And, and David's probably just regaling him with stories of his hunts, his other things. It's talking, talking, talking. And then in the middle, Nathan says, I have a story I want to tell you. Just cuts in. And David's a little taken back, and he says, okay, go ahead. And Nathan says, I want to tell you a story about a poor man. It's a community with a poor man and a rich man, and the poor man has a lamb. That's all he has. He just has one lamb. And he takes this lamb into his house. It's almost one of the kids. They love this little lamb. And, and David's relating immediately because David was a shepherd. David spent time with lambs in the field and so David is interested he knows how interesting lambs can be and so he goes this this poor man raises this lamb along with his kids and they love this lamb and then one day in that same village the rich man has a guest come over and the rich man has all the sheep all the goats all the lambs he could ever want and yet to feed his friend instead of taking one of his own He goes to this poor man and takes the single lamb that the poor man has. That's all he has. And he takes it from him. And at this point, David is outraged. And he said, who is this man? Kill this man. And Nathan simply says, you are the man. David has been found out in his sin. You are the man. Imagine that year of thinking you got away with it. And things happening in your soul, things happening in your heart, that you can't share, you can't tell to a friend, you can't even utter, because you have become the man. And you can't even see anymore. You can't even feel really anymore. And that is what comes out in Psalm 51. I don't feel anymore, God. All of a sudden, what bursts forth is a confession, and that is what 
is here in Psalm 51. You are the man. And everything in that moment falling apart for him. Being discovered not as the people, as the person people thought he was, but the person he actually was. God all along, all of that long year. When you were on the rooftop every moment, you were God was there. God saw that you are the man. How do we confess when that sin seems so big we really don't think we can ever be forgiven? Well, Psalm 51 shows us what that confession looks like. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can follow along with me. There are and, and this is not scientific, but there are, I think, six unique stages that we're going to touch on in Psalm 51 that kind of, where David is leading his heart to the place of forgiveness or to the place of confession where he can receive forgiveness. And it starts really with this. It begins by the asking for mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. Psalm 51, verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Mercy is simply to show someone kindness and forgiveness that they do not deserve. To show someone kindness and forgiveness that they do not deserve. And that is all that David can ask for. I do not deserve what I'm about to ask for, but I'm going to ask for it anyway. As we see in Psalm, David has been living for some time with the loss and absence of God. He was probably putting on a pretty good charade as king. He was probably throwing great parties. He was probably the life of that party. But inside, he was decaying. He had got the girl, but he was not happy. That is the story of David. He is not happy, and God is gone. That's where we find David in Psalm 51. But the second stage is this. David doesn't just ask for mercy, but he holds to who he has known God to be. The God of David when he was in the pasture, when he had the lamb. Pulls all the way back from that and who God has been when he was, he was running away from Saul and all these experiences, who he knows God to be. Stage two is this, holding to the character of God. God have mercy to me according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. These are these two things that David goes, there are so much that terrify me about God. God being so perfect, so pure, I am terrified by that God. But there are two things I know about God that make me know I can come and ask for forgiveness. And that is this. It is the unfailing Love of God, and this is compassion. The unfailing love of God is this, that God's love never weakens. Now, your love and my love gets weak. If someone offends us, does something wrong to us, hurts us, over and over and over again, our love will get weak and then not exist. It just, it just has been used up. The love of God cannot be used up. It's unfailing. You know, you know what happens when you have, like, say, a chair, and someone sits in it over and over and over and over and over again, and then it breaks? It's because that chair fails. 
God does not fail. His love doesn't fail. And so he comes to God because he goes, God, I know I have changed, but I know you haven't changed. I know my love, I don't even know where it's at. It just doesn't exist anymore. But God, your love doesn't, that doesn't happen to your love, God. And the second thing is his compassion, knowing that no matter what happens, no matter where he goes, compassion, which means sharing in suffering, being within suffering, that there is no suffering that is too gross for God. God is willing to go to the place of suffering. He doesn't go, you need to come the distance to me, I will go the distance to you. That is what compassion is. That's why the coffee oasis, we use compassion, the word compassion a lot, because we don't just expect kids to come to us, we expect that we will go to them. Because there's a place you're in, a lostness, you're in a hurt that you have that you can't go the distance. You can't take a step in the direction. You need someone. You need one to come to you. You need God to come to you, and that is compassion. You found me in Nathan. When Nathan said, you're the man, yes, there was judgment in yet, but there was also invitation. I've found you. I found you a year, years after this happened. There's compassion in that judgment. They can be held together. This, this third thing is this that we see here as we get into verses 3 through 6. It is that we need to be honest about sin's impact on our relationship with God. And the way he says this is the starting in verse 3. He says, For I know my transgression, my sin is always before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, I have wrestled with this every time I read Psalm 51 because I think, how can he say against you and you only have I sinned? I, you know, it just seems like he's just wrecking people, like he's just sinning against everybody. So how can he say, God, against you and you only have I sinned? And, and I think, as I understand it, this imagery he's giving of a judge it seems like what he is saying here is that he is he has now approached God alone as if he is standing before the one and only ultimate judge. Aware not just of the sin of Bathsheba, of Uriah, all that that's on him, but all of his sins, surely from birth. This has been in my heart. There have been sins that have I've held on to, that I've cultivated, that have been a part of me. There are these sins, but I am a sinner. I, am, I, am, I have hurt myself and others in more ways than I can even account for, God. And, and from the womb, you wanted me to love you, but from the womb, I haven't loved you. That is what he is saying here. God is judge. God is jury. God is executioner. We are sitting not with God, but against God. That's what David's acknowledging here. All the times I thought I was just good, I wasn't. I was sinful from birth. I'm honest. I'm honest about this relationship, this place I've come to with God. And number four, stage four, now I'm honest about the impact that has made on my life. I need to be honest about the way that is actually affecting me. Now, David even that year, was very much able probably to be the life of the party. He was probably, probably no one could really tell the difference. Maybe he did more. Maybe he gave more gifts. Maybe he built more things. Maybe he started going to war with his, his troops. 
Maybe he started doing all these things, but David had been changed and he'd been changed internally. Repeatedly, he points to the loss and death of joy in his life. He has tried sacrifice and rituals. He talks about hyssop. He talks about sacrificing bulls and sheep and everything else. But none of these things. Years ago, when I was reading this, I wrote in the margin of my Bible, sin steals feelings. We so badly want to feel. We can still watch rom-coms. We can still participate in conversation. But the stain is real. There's this, there's this visual representation in a book by Frank Peretti called The Oath. And it's this very interesting story where he, um, uh, it's this little town and, and uh, as, as sin creeps through the town, people have this, this uh, tar stain that comes onto them. And when the tar stain comes onto them, it can smell to everybody else, but they can't smell it anymore. And they gradually can't think straight. It's this very interesting book. But when I was thinking about what was happening, it was like David couldn't even tell what was happening to him. He couldn't feel anymore until really he had been called out. And all of a sudden he realized, man, it almost as if snapping to it. I just, I can't feel (laughs) Where is my joy gone? I haven't lived. I haven't been living. And David now has become aware of his sin. He sees what he's doing. And he sees what it's making of him. But he does not, on his own, know how to be healed. And so we go into verses 10 to 12, which I think is maybe one of the most beautiful pieces of poetry ever written, one of the most beautiful prayers. And it is this moment where we Go to God for restoration. We go to the one who can restore us. And he writes this. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. As he's come through acknowledging who God is and what it's made him to be, he now comes to his request. And these come in couplets. The first is create and renew. God, I don't need you to just take what I have. I have an absence. I need you to create something. And God, who is creator, can do that. And the second is acknowledging what he has lost. Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. God, if you're going to do that, take me now. I can't, I, this last year I've lived without that and I realize how joyless that's been. I realize it just hasn't worked for me. So, so now, please, Whatever you do, just don't take your spirit from me. I realize that is life. Life alone is life in the spirit, life with you. That is my joy. Take me before you take your spirit from me. And then he ends with this, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willingness, a willing spirit to sustain me. Now, all of us have probably got to this place where we have confess as good as we know, and yet we feel like there's more that needs to be given. And yet we know we can't earn forgiveness. 
And so what? So there is one more thing that has to happen. And it is held in that statement that we hate. When we were kids, and we said, I'm sorry. And your parents said, do you really mean it? And that is what's next. The last stage is this. Let your heart break completely. Let your heart break all the way. Now, I just want to read this for you. And it's so, so powerful. 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifices or I would bring it. I would do more. I would, I would whatever you need. I would, I would conquer kingdoms for you, God. But he said, you don't desire that. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. What can we do? What we can do, the only thing we can do is let our heart break all the way. And this is what keeps many of us from true confession. We must let God decide which parts to keep and which parts need to go. This is the only exchange we can give to God, a broken heart for his healing touch. Think of how often we pick out little pieces that are just too precious to give away. We withhold them from God. Surely he won't mind this one, this small pleasure, this one thing that I can hold on to. We think we can hold it back that as if God doesn't mind. He minds, but not for his sake. He doesn't need that thing. He minds for your sake. Even those parts that you think are perfectly, are perfectly, uh, they perfectly fit into your life. Also, those things must go through the fire, through the refiner's fire. Those few precious pieces that you hold that for you are your only remaining joy are the things that are actually keeping you from real joy. Real joy being the return to full communion with God. All of you must go into the fire. And this is why we don't confess. Because we confess in part. We don't confess fully. We go, God, you have good pieces and I have good pieces. I will give my broken pieces to you. And yet what we hold back holds us all back. We must confess completely. I think many of us have never been broken all the way. We carry partial brokenness and are content with a partially whole life or what we consider to be a partially whole life. We remain convinced that there are still good parts and God will work with that. We will in some way meet God halfway. And yet that not, is not how healing works. Confession is the beginning of healing. Confession begins with a broken heart. Because it is mercy we desire, but mercy that we do not deserve, all we can do is bring our brokenness and wait. Wait for joy and salvation to be restored. While we take communion today, I want you to take it as we do every week and invite you to sit with it. And I think this might be one of the hardest sermons we ever receive because I think we do really good at sectioning our lives. 
we keep God working on this patch of our garden. And God wants all the land of your life. Um, I, I don't want to leave you thinking that because you heard a sermon on this, the brokenness is easy. The brokenness all the way. Because we don't know when our whole selves goes into the fire what we will come out looking like. Really, we don't know what we'll have, really. But what we're trusting is that we'll be fully his. And that is the place that we need to be. And that is the place of restored joy. And that's what we trust when we give him all of our heart, all of our soul, all our mind and all our strength, all of the brokenness, not just a piece of it. We do that trusting him and then waiting to see what he'll do. And that sometimes seems too much to ask. Too much, God, you ask too much. And yet that is exactly what he asked for. So when you take communion today, remembering that Jesus was broken completely, that Jesus went to the cross, fully God, fully man, to the cross completely, And it is in his trust, his radical trust, that if he would die, that he would be raised completely. And with him, we can be raised completely also. That is the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the gospel story. And so my prayer as you take communion is that that will be be all true to you again. Uh, Let me pray, and then um, I just want to invite you, uh, as the music starts again, you can go on to the back and and take communion together. Father, I pray that the the truest parts of all this will not leave us. It will help us, God, give us courage to make this confession. Create me a clean heart. God, restore joy. Give me a willing spirit to come to you completely. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.